Lawrence Weston, also known as L Dub, Pubs, King's Weston House, and Lark's Ascending. Once upon a time, there were two giants. Two giants. Brothers. Two brothers. One was a giant, Gorham. Gorham. Gorham and Vincent. They both fell in love with a giant called Olivia. Called Avona. Called one of the two. Olivia wanted the gorge dug out, the even gorge. So she said, the first giant to dig the gorge out, I will marry. Gorham started first, but he dug too hard, and he quickly got tired and thirsty. He started drinking some ale. Being a Gorham, maybe being a drinker himself. He fell asleep in his enormous armchair. So Vincent went and dug the gorge out. And Vincent got to marry Avona, while Gorham could only watch in anger. You can still see the chair that Gorham sat in today. It's up near Avonmouth, just next to the small housing estate of Lawrence Weston. If you actually have a look in the car park, you can see, and the kids today even believe it, it's the footprints of the, gi- the giants. That there next to me is Bev Gardner-Ponting. She's pointing behind me out the window. We're both sitting here in a pub lounge room mid-afternoon in Lawrence Weston in February. She is the landlady here. There's never what I call a dull day. There's always something going on, as you know. I mean, I'm never sitting down for more than two minutes at a time. Luckily, I've managed to catch her for this quick interview. She is one of the main characters in this story about Lawrence Weston, but she's not from the area. She actually moved here four years ago. Well, I was working in a pub in Wales, and one of my customers had several pubs in and around Uh, Bristol, and he offered me a job. The job was running this pub, and its name, The Giant Gorham. We came up to see the pub on the Sunday, and I fell in love with it, and we opened it up then on the Friday. So it all happened so, like, rather quick. Four years ago, when Bev took over, she inherited a piece of local history. But at the time, she also inherited a leaky roof, a flooded basement, and a healthy layer of dust. Because for 10 months, its doors had been closed. And it was the police that actually closed it due to a drugs bust. This here is Bev's son, Elliot. It was fairly closed down, like the person before us um, got kicked out. It was very, very run down. um, And we spent the next, so like, 15, 16 months, so like, decorating it, putting it up. She's done so much stuff to it, like all these like paintings and stuff. My mum's painted herself. If you look around, you can clearly see that Bev has put her blood and sweat into the place. But as much work as the renovation was, there was, and still is, a bigger challenge to making the giant Gorham successful again. It wasn't just the fact that the pub had been closed for 10 months, which you'd lost a lot of trade, but because the reputation of the pub was quite bad 
it took us a long, long time to sort of like start turning it around. The Gorham had basically been a dive for decades. And so even though Bev was working hard, most people still saw the place as seedy. It had a bad name. And that meant she had trouble getting customers in who weren't there to get high or start fights, although she's only ever had to kick two of them out. In other words, Bev found out she could clean and fix up the building, but she couldn't just wipe the grime off its name. No, changing people's minds about the giant Gorham was going to take something more. I don't drink there a lot, to be honest. Um, um, but I'm told it's quite a nice establishment. Um, um, it seems to be doing a roaring trade. Later that same afternoon, I'm in the youth centre up the road. I'm talking to this man, Mark Pepper. He's sort of telling me about his breakfast routine. Cup of tea, cigarette. Cup of tea, cigarette, cup of tea, work. Jesus. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Mark is really similar to Bev in a lot of ways, which you're about to see. But there's one big difference, and it's that Mark is a true local. I was born and bred in Lawrence Weston, along with my 11 siblings. I worked in the factories and the warehouses. I was a paint sprayer for a little bit. TV engineer. It's a bit like Forrest Gump, really, with the amount of uh, jobs that I've had. I was a teenage parent, um, so we had our first kid when I was about 17. Um, and then from that point, obviously, um, I was more concerned uh, about where my children were being brought up and the changes that the area were going through at the time. There was a lot of crime, a lot of antisocial behaviour, and then drugs started to come into the scene of Lawrence Weston. That was the situation up until the 2000s when austerity began, which you can probably guess didn't really help things. Services in Lawrence Weston started to shut down, shops, the sports centre, and then in 2012, the old Lawrence Weston College was closed. Now, there were a lot of emotional ties around that college, so for many people, it was sort of like the last straw. It made Mark and some of his neighbours start meeting regularly to make a plan for Lawrence Weston. The government and the council weren't giving them any help, so they decided it was time to take back control. First, they needed support from their neighbours, so off they went. To go out and door knock every uh, door in Lawrence Weston. To ask every single person what their opinion was. What was good? what was not so good about Lawrence Weston and what changes they wanted to see. We brought all that information together in a document called The Way Forward, Lawrence Weston's resident written and driven community development plan. This plan gave them the buy-in to start making real changes. For one, residents said they wanted a supermarket even though council thought there was no demand. So Mark and his team made a power move, hired their own retail consultant, and they brought a little to Lawrence Weston. How about the youth centre was going to close? Nope, not anymore. Now it hosts adult education classes. How about a solar farm, wind turbine, BMX track? The team applied for government grants and got them all. We've never encountered any resistance whatsoever. The reason for that is because we are the residents coming together. Today, this organisation that Mark leads is called Ambition Lawrence Weston. They're trying to put this post-war housing estate back on the map and make a better life for its people. But Mark says, despite everything they've done, they keep hearing something really discouraging. So we've been told that people would rather stay homeless than be accommodated in Lawrence Weston. That's how bad this place still seems. Worse than living on the street. And it seems ridiculous. Um, but that's the level of perception that's out there uh, when, when considering Lawrence Weston as a, as, a, as a place to live. 
Some people say there's no smoke without fire. So when a reputation is this bad, is that fair? How do you separate the rumors from the truth? Or separate what was true in the past from what's true now? It's easy to get a bad reputation, but it's really hard to lose that reputation. Um, and that's what we're faced with at the moment. Although I'm not too concerned about other people's perception of Lawrence Weston as such. Um, we know it's a fantastic place to live. Um, and to be honest, we'd like to keep it that, a little secret. Oops, sorry, Mark, cat's out the bag. But I think he's right to be proud of his home. The people here are friendly, the streets are clean, and it's not dangerous anymore to be out at night. You can even go out for a drink. Although, here's the thing. You'll struggle to find any pubs to drink in, and that's because... Yeah, there aren't any. Or there aren't many. So we used to have five pubs. Some of them had existed here for more than a century. But thanks to austerity, wages going down and money drying up, one by one, the pubs went out of business. Four of them got knocked down between 2007 and 2013. The English Rose, the Penpole Inn, the Long Cross Inn, and the Mason's Arms. We're now left with one, which is the Gore, a giant Gorham public house. So here we are. The Gorham isn't just a pub in Lawrence Weston. It's the last pub in Lawrence Weston. Final stop of the day, and I'm heading back to the Gorham. As I walk up to it, I notice something new. What looks like 10 or 15 kids out on bikes. I dodge my way through to get to the side door into the Skittle Alley, where I'm meeting Ian Scott, Scotty. How many bikes are you on here? Uh, in here, probably about 150, 200 bikes. Bloody hell. Maybe. Easy. These 200 bikes are in the current base of the L-Dub Community Bike Project. Here, Scotty and his friends and colleagues take old broken bikes, fix them up, and give them to kids for free. I remember I grew up, I was running around here when I was about two or three years old. And I still 49 running around here, like a kid. <laughs> so nothing's changed in 49 years, really. Going back six years ago, uh, my mum got ill. So uh, I had to come back to look after her. I didn't have to, but I did do. And I had a shed full of parts, bike parts, and she asked me to clear the sheds out. So uh, we didn't realise how much bike parts was in there. You know, have to build three or four bikes. So we built the bikes up and gave them to the local kids. And then we started getting asked for bikes. And they kept getting asked. The project kept growing. They made a deal with Bristol Waste. And now they get any bikes that have been thrown away. They used to store them around the corner on a strip of council-owned land, with permission, of course. Until one day that permission got taken away, the council threatened him with eviction. He had to find somewhere to put hundreds of bikes and fast. He went to Bev for help. So I asked her, would it be possible to put a few in the scale alley? Yeah, Scott, you can put a few in there. Well, 250 a few, I suppose. But when she came back, she was, she was like, well, fell on the floor. <laughs> what have you done to my skittle alley? The two of them worked out a deal. She gave him the skittle alley, and he gives her a bit of money when he can, but he also does something way more important, something Bev couldn't do on her own. He brings kids and families to the Gorham. Kids like the ones on brand new bikes outside today. He, he made my kids smile today. Kids ain't even mine are happy because they've all been served the bike and they was only coming to a 50th birthday and they've gone in with a bike each. Can I say something? Scott's a good man. Do you think? They're taking away the amenities around here, just keeping this place going. I, on the other hand, want to try and get all these kids off the gadgets because it's too easy for parents to stick their kid in the corner go out and have their cigarette and leave them on these iPads for hours and hours and hours and hours, but it's warping their brains. 
Come down to the gorm. You got a bike for free. What does it take to change people's minds about a pub? Decorations on the walls? A nicer neighborhood around it? Free bikes for kids? Or what about if it's the only one left? Trouble is, once anything has got a bad reputation, it's going to take a long time for it to, to change. Um, and a lot of people, even now, still think that this, this is a bit of a dive. But it is slowly turning around. Not as quick as I'd like it, but it's getting there. And Lawrence Weston is the same. I did a little bit of research on it when I first got up here, and my boss at the time took me to several of his other pubs, and every one of them said, what do you want to go to Lawrence Weston for? Are you mad? But i got to be honest, I can't fault the people around here. They're brilliant. Thousands of years ago, when his brother Vincent married Avona, the drunk, lazy giant known as Gorham was so distraught that he drowned himself in the Severn Estuary. But right now, even as the other pubs around it have suffocated, the giant Gorham is still afloat. Lawrence Weston was first mentioned in 1870 as a small settlement in the parish of Henbury. With a major housing crisis after the Second World War, the city council developed the housing estate as we know it today. My name is Norman Routledge. Uh, I've been involved with King's Weston House since December 2012 where we got the keys from the previous owners who'd gone bankrupt. Uh, the house is 300 years old. It's situated close to Lawrence Weston in Bristol. And as I say, it's been there for a long time. It was designed by Sir John Vanbrugh, who also designed Blenheim Palace. It was bought by the Southall family, who were Secretary of State for Ireland. So it was halfway in time between Kinsale in Ireland, where they could watch their ships coming to, queue to get into Bristol, and Parliament in London, so it's very convenient for them. That's Norman. He lives in King's Western House. The house has changed hands fundamentally a few times over the last 300 years because the Southall family stayed till the 1830s, where the Napier Miles family took it on. They bought King's Western House for one son and Lee Court over the river for their other son, rather had Lee Court built for their other son. They were Bristol's first millionaires, and might perhaps have had a little bit to do with the slave trade. In fact, the Napier Miles family were heavily involved in the slave trade, owning plantations in Trinidad and Jamaica until the abolition of slavery in 1833. So the Napier Miles family were at King's Western House till the 1930s, when the last of those descendants left, and it got sold to Bristol Municipal Charities. It went through various life forms and was a school for a little while. It uh, got used by Bath School of Architecture for a few years. And then in the 1970s, the police took it on and they had it for 25 years. They wanted to turn it into their police headquarters, but there was an outcry over being able to build buildings in the grounds. Uh, so they retrenched to Portishead where they have their existing building now. So, um, I have an interesting connection to your building because 19 years ago, I was filming a drama there. That's Anne-Marie. 
she interviewed Norman for this episode of the podcast. So I'm kind of interested <laughs> in um, the, the, the very significant thing about the building itself is this incredible staircase that you get this sense of wonder. And I remember actually filming a scene there. So tell me about what brought you to the house. Was it as a builder or was it because you just love the house in its entirety? Well, I'd been running a company called Canon Security for 16 years, which I was only really meant to do for a couple of weeks, but got stuck in and uh, entrenched in that and was desperate to find a, a project. Uh, my nephew started going out with one of the girls in the cafe and he said, here, there's a place called King's Western. And I said, where is King's Western? I've never heard of it. So uh, it seemed like a wonderful building. It wants to be loved and we wanted to, to have a project, so that's how it started. And was it a, a, a major challenge getting the funds together? Because it obviously needed quite a lot of renovation and restoration. Well, it had been there 300 years, so it was a fairly solid building, but it was nearly on the at-risk register. So we, we had a very small funds uh, to start with, but by doing the odd wedding and the odd conference and odd parties, we managed to get funds in. We spend that on the house, do a few more events, spend that on the house, and manage to finance it by doing that. So you actually live in the property? So I live there, as do 16 others. Ah, so, so are there lots of different apartments? Is that how it's structured? No, it's still set up as bedrooms. We've got one communal lounge, we've got one communal kitchen, and there are three youngsters that live there, so it's not just old buggers like me. Uh, and, and we've loved living there. So we're close to Lawrence Western and Shirehampton. Uh, everybody in the local area has been really supportive. They've seen the house come on a bit and are grateful that that's been happening and have just been so welcoming. And as I say, they've given every encouragement once they've see the, seen the grounds coming on. We now are doggy central. There are more dog walkers around us than, than ever which is great, and I love it that the city own the house, they own the freehold, so I'm just looking after it for them. And it's great that the people in the city, and the local people especially, come and, and look after it with me. Next, we spoke to Ed, who had some more knowledge on the history of King's Western House and nearby Lawrence Weston. Hi, I'm Ed Clark. I'm intimate with the area known as Lawrence Weston. If I might explain, Lawrence Weston is just, I would say, um, east of King's Western House. It extends down to the River, River Avon and to the Bristol Channel. Ed told us about a time when he was in King's Western House. I was sitting there once in a cafe there. It's got a beautiful cafe there. Maybe we could all go there one day. And um, there was a magazine, and it was showing a boat, uh, two big boats, part of a fleet. And it, it, one was had the Scottish um, flag, and the other was the, um, the Dutch flag, because it was William of Orange. So what happened was that they, they, they were the Protestants, and they invaded um, Ireland. And it was a Scottish uh, admiralty that helped them defeat the Irish. So they didn't go, when they sailed, they didn't sail back into, um, into London. They sailed into Bristol and they, they went to King's Western House. In fact, King's Western House hosted King William's fleet on return of the battle in Ireland. It was moored near the River Avon on the Bristol Channel. Well, although Bristol has always had 
and been associated with piracy and human trafficking, which is not the people's doing, it's the powers that be. This is Esther, who works on the grounds at the house. Hello, I'm Esther. I've worked on the beds at King's Western House over the winter, making sure they're ready to go in the spring, though unfortunately the weeds just keep coming. It's a lovely place for a walk and a doggy's paradise. I've loved learning about the history around the King's Western Estates in general and King's Western House in particular. The house is a Baroque-style building and is part of a wider range of estate that includes Blaise Castle. At King's Western Estate, there are some beautiful historic buildings built in the early 18th century and sitting in 300 acres in all, reaching down to Penpole Woods in Shahampton and across the Blaise Estate, which you get to over the Iron Bridge. One of the lovely things about working at King's Western House, as well as meeting the lovely dogs and their owners, is a bird song. There are numerous robin territories, and I think I've become acquainted with all of the robins. I've heard great tits and buzzards, and there are sparrowhawks, nuthatches, and most importantly, skylarks. Which brings me to the lark ascending. I'm a trustee at Shahampton Public Hall. The hall has a plaque on the door referring to the 1920 premiere of Vaughan Williams' Lark Ascending. It's intended in December 2020 to stage 100th anniversary performance of this most popular classical piece to be performed by the Bristol Ensemble. So, what's the story behind Lark Ascending? The last of the Napier Myers family living at King's Western House was a composer, and he had a friend called Vaughan Williams. That is Ralph Vaughan Williams, the famous English composer from the early 20th century. Vaughan Williams was staying at King's Western House when he completed his work, that is the solo version and piano piece, Lark Ascending, before it was premiered in Shahampton Public Hall in 1920. Here's Jonathan, who lived in King's Western House in the early 70s. Hello, my name is Jonathan. Jonathan Leatherby, actually. Lived in King's Western House for many years. I moved in, I think it was 71, possibly. Anyway, long time ago, maybe 60 now, so... When I was living there, I think my dad was a caretaker looking after the place. It was a police training school at the time. I really enjoyed it all the time I was there. It was ups and downs. There were some, quite some sad moments. But most of it was joyful. It was a massive estate. You know, the freedom of it on the weekends, it was perfect. I think I was 12 years old when I first got there. I remember once that um, my mum was going to cut my hair, you know, the old basin around the head, and trim off the edges so you look like a, an upside-down colander stuck on your head with a weird-shaped haircut, like a monk. I didn't want it done. I wasn't going to have it done. I said no, and I stormed off on my push bike. I zipped up the road up King's Western Lane, up to the top, and you turn left, and it goes down towards Blaise Castle. What I used to do is push bike up to the top, then go as fast as you can and free wheel all the way down this, this slope. I'd zoom in down there and I turned left to my mistake and went straight into a car and uh, broke my femur, actually. It was quite a clout. Anyway, I broke my legs. I got my dad to come and get me. 
and um, I've to hospital. I go stuck in hospital for six weeks in traction. The air grew quite long there. Actually, it was quite good. Anyway, I came out and uh, that particular night, half a bottle, well, actually a, a bottle of light ale and fell off my crutches and broke my leg in exactly the same place. Back in again over six weeks. Many months after that event, on the weekends, it was great times because um, my dad taught me how to drive when I was eight. So I could drive a car when I was eight years old. But living in King's Western House, on the weekends, we had the whole estate. Of course, I could drive, and Dad used to have an old Austin Cambridge. We used to zip round the grounds with that thing, driving round on the weekends. Quite uh, good fun, really, because all the guys I used to know at school, young lads would be at the time. We always used to fill the car up and zip round the estate, doing wheel spins, getting stuck in mud, everything. One time he was going round the grounds, and a mate of mine was on the roof, laying on top of the roof. He's zipping around all these corners, just trying to get them to fall off. But you think about it, really, you know, you're doing something like even 20 miles an hour, somebody's holding on to the roof on either side of the windows. He used to wind the windows up, try and crush his fingers to, let, to get him to let go. To be quite honest, we could have killed him, but we didn't care in those days. Here's Norman and Anne-Marie again. Anybody can rent some space in the building. We do have to cover the bills. So in terms of how you feel, not only are you working in the building and obviously getting events in and all of that kind of thing, how do you feel when you wake up in the morning in a building like that? Uh, well, it's a joy, obviously, looking out through the windows and seeing the estate, uh, seeing everybody enjoying themselves. It is amazing. So do you actually get to really, really enjoy it or does it feel like work and home are, are constantly enmeshed together? Uh, I think we're at the stage now. We've got a great team that look after most of the events. Who can tell what the next phase of the adventure will be, but uh, it's a great house. So what does Lawrence Weston mean to me? John Netherby, who you just heard, living in uh, King's Weston House when it was a police academy, is the partner of my mum. Also, I remember filming an award-winning horror movie in uh, King's Weston House as a teenager called Cold Harbour with ITV West Drama Workshop. And uh, I think it involved one of the characters being locked in a fridge in the basement. Uh, unfortunately, I've just been informed that the giant Goran pub is now closed, what you heard at the beginning, so uh, no pubs at all in the area. But there are the remains of a Roman villa. Hi, my name is Rita Cangialosi, and I live in Lawrence Weston, BS11. I haven't moved here from Italy in 1999. I live in Lawrence Weston from 2007. Uh, I live very near to the Roman Villa, which is um, on Long Cross, which at the moment got this beautiful cherry blossom all over the place, a really beautiful view, mass massive pink trees all over. From what I understood, the Roman Villa used to be a where some hierarchy person used to live.
and and the port it wasn't see me or there, there, there was a port there which I visited and apparently the people live there they went during digging their garden planted stuff but they actually found coins Roman coins there's a lot of them yeah it's a beautiful story this is, used to be just an empty place where few people used to live here from the Roman time A B C D E F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, Z. Okay, my name is Gail Boyle and I am Senior Curator of Archaeology and World Cultures and I'm based at Bristol Museum and Art Gallery but I work across all of Bristol's museums. What is a Roman villa doing in Lawrence Weston? So I think we have to go very far back in time and understand that obviously Lawrence Weston did not exist until after the Second World War and it was only because the estate was being built at Lawrence Weston in the late 1940s that we even knew a Roman villa was there. Uh, you need to understand a little bit about Roman history to, to maybe have an idea of why it's there. So unlike some cities like Bath, for example, Bristol is not, does not develop from a Roman settlement. Our Roman, main Roman settlement is actually at sea mills. And the suggestion is that there was a, maybe a military camp there, which then developed into a civilian settlement and a town which was known as Portus Aboni. So it was actually a port and things, goods would be brought to that port from all over the empire. We've got evidence of things coming in from, say, Gaul, which is where France is now, being imported into, into the country through there. And then as the, the military move on and out, the civilian settlement stays. And then a Roman villa obviously is not in the middle of that town. It's away from the town. And generally, when we're thinking about a Roman villa, we're thinking about a building which is built mainly out of usually the foundations at least made out of stone, but generally built out of stone, which is something that didn't happen before the Romans came to, to Britain and has some degree of luxury about it. So either mosaics on the floor or painted wall plaster, or they might have a Roman bath suite or some underfloor heating. And these villas can be somewhere which could be the centre of an agricultural estate, or they could be the centre of some industrial activity. Uh, so usually in rural areas, but occasionally you'll find that very rich Roman Romano British people would have them as their kind of like weekend places. So lots of places in and around Bath like that might be might be characterised in that way. But ours looks like it was probably quite a modest villa and that it was probably the centre of an agricultural estate that was exploiting all the rich soil in and around the Severn estuary for agricultural purposes but it wasn't built until the about 1700 years ago. So probably about over 200 years, 250 years after the Romans came to Britain. How and when was it discovered? So in the late 1940s, after the Second World War, there was a huge boom in building. We required houses for people to live in. So there are lots of estates that are built in and around Bristol. And Lawrence Weston is one of those, those estates. 
and there was a teenage boy called George Council Boone, who was a Bristol-born and bred schoolboy, and his friend John Clevedon Brown, they all seem to have triple barrel themes. They went to Fairfield School, and George Boone had been interested by some excavation that had taken place along the portway before the Second World War, and then had been communicating with, for example, German prisoners of war who had been used essentially to help build houses in that area, and got enthused by archaeology and got permission to do a dig in Sea Mills. And so when all of the work started out at Lawrence Weston, uh, he had also corresponded with the director of the museum. And in fact, the director of the museum had supplied him with money uh, in order to be able to buy finds that had been found in the ground in Sea Mills. We've got those in the collection. So we've got a whole series of letters, but essentially he writes to the director of the museum to try and get permission to follow all the diggers and the engineering works that were going on out at Lawrence Weston in preparation of building of the houses. So him and his friend obviously went out there and then started to recognise archaeological remains. And then there was one day where it was actually his friend, John Clevedon Brown, that noticed a little tunnel, if you like, but would have carried hot air from a furnace underneath a heated floor. And that's when they started to realise that there, potentially there was a Roman building there and called in a few people uh, like an inspector of ancient monuments to come and say, do you think there is and should we dig it? And then got permission to dig, which would be completely unheard of today. And archaeology is so strictly controlled. Yes, it's all done as part of the development process and the planning process. But the idea that an 18 year old boy and his friend could get permission to do this now, if you think about all the health and safety, the risk assessments, the the, the control, the professionalism, the things like that. So that's a romantic idea that, that somebody should do this, but that's what happened. So from my research, I found out that there were some bodies found. And, and what yes. did you find out from, from these bodies, human bodies? So uh, two human skeletons. I can tell you more about one of the skeletons than the other, because the other was, one of them wasn't recorded particularly well. And, and this is what we also need to be mindful of, that in the late 1940s, the methods of recording archaeology and also what happened to the material that was excavated was quite different to today. So the records that we've got consist of photographs at the moment and drawings of where the skeleton was found. So we talked about the hypercore system, the underfloor heating system, and that's where the remains of a middle-aged man, a skeleton was found uh, during the excavation. And his remains were mingled in with the rubble, the almost kind of like demolition rubble or where the roof had collapsed. And it also looks from the photographs like he had met uh, a not very nice death um, because he'd been hit over the head with possibly an ax or a sword blade. We don't have the skeleton to go back, so we can only look at the, the pictures. We don't know where the skeletal remains are anymore. What we can say probably is that he wasn't somebody that lived at that site. There is some evidence that he probably died after the villa had fallen into disrepair because his bones were over some of the rubble. And it's, it's or equally possible that he was killed elsewhere and his body was deposited there or he was, he was killed there 
and that's where he stayed until the rest of the villa collapsed in on top of him. Wow, a murder mystery. So how can people visit the site? Is it possible to visit and look at the Roman villa? It is definitely possible. Keys to the site are available from Blaise Castle House Museum when it's open and also from Bristol Museum and Art Gallery when it's open. And there are guide sheets and things like that which are available through the Bristol Museum's website. You need to look at Blaze Museum tab on our website in order to be able to get a link to King's Western Roman Villa. But essentially you can borrow the keys and you can let yourself in. It, you pay a refundable deposit for the key so you get your, your money back when you take the key back and you collect it in the morning maybe and take it in the afternoon. For this episode, I'd like to thank Phil Sampson, Rosabelle Portella, Anne-Marie McCormack and Jack Gould. This podcast has been brought to you by BCFM, Bristol's first community radio station, in partnership with Bristol 24-7, Bristol Museums, Bristol Archives and the University of the West of England, funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. Cheers, mate. Bye.